Michael, in order to expedite these negotiations, we are prepared to make you a very generous offer. And we are prepared to reject that offer. Michael, you haven't even heard. Never accept their first offer. What is your second offer? Welcome to the 70th episode of Egg Timer Philosophy. For today's episode, the topic will be consent. Specifically, I'll be taking a look at why consent is such an important feature within ethics and political philosophy, as well as saying a bit about the three major types of consent, direct, tacit, and hypothetical. Just about everyone sees very quickly why consent is a vital aspect of an autonomous life. Consent is the act of approving or disapproving what happens to you. It's the reason why you can't just wake up in the morning and find out that you have a mortgage on a house that you know nothing about. The ability to exercise consent protects us against things which we don't desire in the most important aspects of our lives. Some of these aspects include the political, economical, medical, and sexual. It's not difficult to see why consent matters. What is a bit more difficult is to specify exactly how we want to think about consent within an ethical system. So we could ask, how does consent relate with ethics more generally? The best answer there, I think, is to treat consent as an important feature which can change already existing ethical norms and standards. To see how this works, assume that you have autonomy over what happens to the hair on your head, or for that matter, all of your hair. The power of your hairstyle rests with you. That's yours and yours decisions alone. A barber isn't simply permitted to give you a haircut because you need it, even if it's true that you probably need a haircut. Consent changes that ethical status quo and signifies you give permission for the haircut. Without the needed permission or consent, no haircut should be happening. Consent alters the existing moral landscape to allow for something new to happen. You can imagine here a pre and post consent ethical state of affairs, and they look entirely differently. In many cases, consent has the ability to completely alter how we ethically assess a situation. We could imagine two people just pounding each other with their fists, and the first reasonable reaction is, whoa, something not ethically okay is occurring. But then we hear from another person that this is a licensed boxing match, and both fighters have consented to the match. At that, at that point, most people would say, oh, okay, now my judgments about this situation are very different. Philosophers have, have offered three broad categories of consent direct, tacit, and hypothetical. All of these are quite a bit different from one another, so I'd like to go through each one, one by one. The form of consent that most people are, are familiar with is that of direct consent. This is when a free and informed person uh, expresses their desire in a clear and direct fashion. This happens, for instance, when you read over a contract, you understand the terms, and you freely sign your name on the dotted line. That's a clear case of direct consent. But in many cases, the idea of what counts as informed and free can be blurry. Here is an example. Say a person travels to another country they have never been in before, and they're hungry for a meal. So they walk into a typical restaurant and sit down. They order off a menu which has no prices and consume a fine meal. 
At the end of the mill, a check is brought to them, and they have no idea what this is about. Perhaps they've never encountered this practice before. Different cultures handle the sharing of and compensation related to food in different ways. We can ask, did the person directly consent to paying for their meal? I think probably not. They made agreements, if we want to call them agreements, and that's a stretch, without the requisite information required for direct consent. The same could not be said for a person who is exposed to different cultural norms where it's understood that eating in a restaurant requires payment at the end of a meal. Like direct consent, tacit consent requires the consent to be given in a free and informed fashion, but it differs in how consent is given or conferred. When a person tacitly agrees to something that they're going to do or refrain from doing, they do something with an implication to confer their consent. This is a bit different than direct consent, where a person might verbally say yes or sign their name on a, on a dotted line. So for an example from political philosophy, a person might claim that you agreed to be ruled by your government because you paid your tax bill that you were sent, or because you remained where you are and didn't leave to a place under the control of a different government. These types of arguments are popular because most people have never directly consented to their government. And if direct consent is required for a legitimate government, then we're going to wind up with a whole lot of illegitimate governments. Tacit consent might help avoid that conclusion. For next week's episode, we'll get more into John Locke's infamous defense of tacit consent to a political power, but for now it's worth pointing out a, a clear problem or issue with tacit consent. Tacit consent is problematic because unlike direct consent, there's no clear connection between the tacit action and the thing being consented to. If I pay my tax bill to avoid fine or jail, it's not clear that I have done anything of moral significance except pay the bill to avoid the, the bad consequences of not paying it. To suggest that my payment means that I've consented to a government might have as much foundation as saying that my paying the bill, the bill means that I have consented to eating chocolate ice cream for dessert. Again, we'll get more into this notion of tacit consent on next week's episode. The last form of consent that philosophers have written extensively about is hypothetical consent. Now, this idea is really different from both direct and tacit consent because it doesn't rely upon anything about the agent acting specifically or the person acting specifically. So it's a really weird notion of consent, um, or at least many people when they hear it think it's weird. And while some may endorse the idea, many also reject it. Hypothetical consent suggests that consent should be thought of in terms of what you would agree to under some set of conditions. Usually these conditions are ones where you would be well-informed, where you would be free, and where you would be making rational choices. So what would the informed and free and rational you consent to hypothetically? When we get our answer to that, then we can apply how consent ought to be thought of in respect to yourself now. 
like I said, this is a weird notion of consent, and ultimately I think it probably runs so far astray to the notion of consent um, and the reasons why we value consent that it's, it's a hard idea to defend. So to see why that's the case, think back to the example of the barber from earlier. Let's just say that you really do need that haircut and your rational self would realize this and agree to a haircut. But the actual you just isn't feeling like a haircut. But the barber cuts your hair while you're asleep without your permission. And we say we could endorse hypothetical consent. Then at least from the standard of consent, at least from that standard of consent, the barber has done nothing wrong because your hypothetical consent was present. But that's obviously, a, I think, a fairly problematic, problematic view. Hypothetical consent is a neat and interesting idea to think about, but I'm highly skeptical of it playing a strong role in our moral judgments. Until next time on Egg Timer Philosophy, when we delve a bit deeper into John Locke's notion of tacit consent, wishing you good philosophical vibes. Mm -hmm.